Gen Off Grid provides stations with reliable energy systems comprising of solar, lithium batteries and backup diesel, reducing current diesel usage by up to 90%. All systems are built and tested at our workshops in Broome, Caratha and Darwin, with proven performance in North Australian conditions, backed by a 10-year warranty, local support and remote monitoring. Visit their website to see systems in action on cattle stations, as well as commercial, ecotourism and industrial projects. Learn more at genoffgrid.com. That's G-E-N-O-F-F-G-R-I-D.com. Listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. This podcast is brought to you by Ariat Australia, the perfect choice for the tough jobs. Ariat boots and clothing work hard, look good, and are so comfortable there's never a need to slow down. Visit ariat.com.au today. They say that Australia rode to prosperity on the sheep's back. And for more than a century, the Gascoigne region of Western Australia was sheep country running millions of animals and generating the kind of wealth that literally built Australia. But with the introduction of synthetic fibres, the industry gradually lost its shine, and when the wool market crashed in 1991, most stations started transitioning to cattle. Sean Darcy of Linden Station was in the first wave of cattlemen in the region. Sean is a truly progressive pastoralist, and has been incredibly proactive when it comes to all things natural resource management. In this episode, we explore the unique challenges of managing country in the Upper Gascoigne from both social and economic perspectives. So we're in the northern Gascoigne, we're 280 k's northeast of Carnarvon, um, and we've got two properties here, one's in the Pilbara and one's in the Gascoigne, so um, the border runs right between us, um, and uh, so we're in, you know, a very unreliable rainfall climate, but generally pretty big, fairly big properties, um, but, you know, not massive numbers of cattle because it's um, it's just such an unreliable climate, we can't really bank on summer or winter rain we just hope for a bit of each or a bit of both but yeah i think you're actually our first guest from the Gascoigne. technically pretty sure not sure what order all these episodes will come out in but when i think of well for a long time when i thought of cattle stations and a lot of the stuff or the people we've had involved on our website and podcast i think uh people think pilbara kimberley well even just kimberley top end uh, and over the years, we've tried to, you know, get a bit more Pilbara and we've kind of branched down to Central Australia. But um, I'm going to just for um, 
the sake of it, I'm going to say the southern rangelands, and so we'll have a yarn about that. Well, we never really have anyone from this part of the world, and it's not really uh, ever brought up in discussions, I guess. It's kind of like the quiet, even though it's a fair chunk of the pastoral estate in Western Australia, it's not really spoken about much or everyone just kind of thinks, I don't know, I think our minds go straight to the Kimberley when you think of a cattle station. Mm. Well, I guess, um, I guess 30 years ago most of the region was still sheep. Most stations had a few cattle, but but you know we're primarily sheep, and then I, I suppose the transition takes a fair while. So you know people were properties were you know underdeveloped as far as cattle went for a long time. So I suppose it's probably the last ten or fifteen years the Gascoigne's really hit its straps. So I suppose you know people are still catching up to that a bit. But you uh, know we're you know at, at full cattle capacity um, now because of improvements and all that sort of thing. So I guess it's been a slow road, but. Um, I'd say most of the northern Gascoigne's pretty similar to the southern and western Pilbara now as far as, you know, slightly less rainfall, probably slightly less numbers, but very similar, similar types of cattle. And, yeah. So even though this property has been around, I mean, most pastoral leases were established way back when, you know, they've all been around for a fair while. When it comes to cattle, you're still in somewhat of a, would you call it like an infancy stage then? Or, or maybe like toddler? Uh, I think, um. Teenager? <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, I, I think everyone's pretty developed now around this neck of the woods anyway. So, you know, I think most, most places have changed all their sheep infrastructure over to cattle completely and everyone's got plenty of sets of yards and plenty of waters and all that sort of stuff. And, um, so no, I think we're, we're all, we're all up and running and where we need to be as far as cattle go. Your family, the Darcy's or Darcy family. I never know. I'm like, did I just plural, like, I make that a plural? Um, or did I change that? You had a, f- a fairly long history with Linden Station. Is it just Linden or Linden and Tower? Well, yeah. My grandfather took up the management of Linden in 1932. So he managed for a, um, he actually came from Bidjimire, Woolene and then Bidjimire and then here. Um, and he managed for an English company and then my dad, Bought the, my dad took over the management in the 60s and bought the property off the English company in 1972, I think. That is. And then tower, added tower on a few years later. He actually added another couple of stations on, um, but couldn't manage to hold on to them through the 1970s cattle, uh, recessional. Yeah. So we ended up with Linden and Tower. Been here ever since. That's a, you're pushing a hundred years of this land being under the management of your family. Mm, getting close. Yeah. That is, yeah. that's quite an achievement. Mm. Do you know what the name of the company was that your grandfather was managing? Oh, for? so Munro's, they called themselves. They're an English company. They were, they had a manor in England and, you know, like a lot of these places, I think, you know, absentee owners, I think Lyndon was in charge of keeping them, keeping the manor in England running, which it did pretty well during the sheep days. I mean, you know. Over the war period and, and those times, there, there was these places were like gold mines. There was so much money used to come off them. In yeah. terms of sheep or wool? Wool, or? yeah. Yeah, wool was worth so much. So so mm. that's why a lot of those English companies owned sheep stations because they're a really good way to make money. And this would have been like well before like um, the electric or, I don't know, powered shears. I don't know what you call them. Yeah, Clippers. yeah. Would yeah, it yeah. Like, yeah. Would it have been yeah. like old like scissor? Yeah, it would have been shears? hand shears and all that sort of oh. stuff. But um yeah, well, it was just worth a fortune and, you know, was your sheep gran- stations was where it was at for a while there. So that's changed a lot, hasn't it? I know. Well, it's kind of, you know, everything comes in fashion and goes out of fashion. So you've got to wonder if, 
if, you know, in 100 years' time, people will be bringing, you know, make, sheep might make a comeback. You never know. Well, they are now, I suppose. But are they really? They, they won't come back into this country, but but sheep are worth a lot of money as well. But yeah, yeah. Well, I, well, I don't think we'll ever see them back up here. Well, I'll never say never. <laughs> um, was your granddad around growing up? Like, did he um, – so if he was managing in the 30s, and I'm just thinking, like, you're not, you're not that old. Uh, was he, was he like a part of your childhood? Did you get to spend much yeah, time? Yeah, but he with was him? in Perth. Oh, so okay. he, he retired to Perth. Yeah. So did you get yeah. to hear many stories from him about what it was bits like? Bits and pieces. Then? He died when I think I was in about year nine at school. Yeah. So yeah, bits and pieces, sure. Yeah. What about from yeah. your dad? Can you share with us, you know, what, what it would have been like if we were sitting here at Linden, you know, in the 1930s and we definitely wouldn't have been in, as probably as much comfort as we are now, especially in December. I'm sure whatever – well, I mean, it's probably the same house, isn't it? Mm, oh, yeah. But absolutely. would it have been is, as cool back then? This is built in 1910, this house, so. This is wild. Guys, it's got the coolest roof with this press yeah, tin. Yeah. Um, yeah, look, Dad's got dad, – Dad's got – Dad loves to tell old stories, so he's always got Where, – Where's Dad? Up. I'm going to stalk him. So he lives in Perth. Um, but we've got a couple of properties. We've just – we've got some backgrounding properties a couple of hours north of Perth, so – he uh he goes back and forth a fair bit, but he lives in Perth now. Okay, Mr. And Dad's eighty two, and he still you know still puts cattle through the yards, so he's going pretty well. The original Mister Darcy coming at you, <laughs> be warned. Um, but tell tell me what you know of Lyndon back in the day, and what stories you'd heard. Oh well, obviously you know that was it was it was very very different. There was there was big teams of people. There was lots of jackaroos, and there was always a you know. Aboriginal fam, a couple of Aboriginal families living here as well. And so it's a lot different, big crew and very different to now, I suppose. But we, you know, we run on, we, we sort of run on skeleton crews in this neck of the woods now that certainly wasn't the same. Even when I was growing up, there was always lots of people here. It was a big community. Lots of stuff went on. You know, there was tennis matches on the weekend and all that. I mean, they worked hard. Don't, don't get me wrong, but there, there was a, there was a really good social structure as well. So it sounds like the population was a lot higher. Back in the day. Absolutely, yeah. And then shearing teams and, you know, the bush was teaming with people. So when you were growing up... The, Dad, was- Dad remembers, you know, swaggies walking through and there was a swaggy that used to come past the same time every year and there was just stacks of people out here. So when you say swaggy, are we talking like the Bandrew Patterson poem? Is that... Yeah, is that, that kind poem? of thing. Yeah, there so was quite a, a few... They, back in back in when Dad was a kid, there was quite a, quite a few people that were doing, you know, doing that sort of thing, just cruising around the bush because they had nowhere else to go and I guess there was no welfare, so... And they, they're just like carrying a swag though. Yeah. Yeah. Doing a bit of work here and there. Mm. I feel like maybe I'm the modern day swaggy. Then. Yeah. Well, maybe you are. Except you definitely wouldn't catch me walking anywhere. Mm. I think I'd walk like a meter and perish. <laughs> so when you were growing up, was it all, all sheep here? Yeah. We had a few cattle. Yeah. But it, we were mostly sheep. It was a big sheep operation. You know, what we'd, can we'd, you- we'd sort of shear a thousand bales of wool. In a big year. So what so. is that? I mean, I've, I've got no context for that. Um, how many sheep are we talking? How many sheep would it take to make so a thousand bales of wool? So we sort of had 40,000 sheep. Holy and Tara. Um, and, you know, they're just, and, and lots of people, cause they're just so much more work sheep. You know, they've all got to be fenced. You know, you've got to, the whole place has got to be fenced up in small paddocks and, and they've got to be managed all the time. You can't just do what you do with cattle and get them settled on a watering point. And that's where they live. Sheep are, got to be constantly managed they're always walking into the prevailing wind so you know you've got a bit of a structure where you'd put them up the top of paddocks after shearing and slowly let them down and yeah there's a lot of work a lot of fencing a lot of fencing 
It sounds like it's it's almost like letting a toddler loose in a room and you can't just let them loose to go and play. You've got to constantly watch them to make sure they're not putting their fingers in PowerPoints or pulling stuff out of the cupboards. They're kind of like that, yeah. Wow, I yeah. have no idea. So and, yeah. kind of, and constantly watching for dog tracks and that kind of thing because you get one dog and you can, you know, it can be a wipeout. So <laughs> they're very intensive and, you know, they, they were very intensive and, and, and probably not really suited to where they were. What kind of sheep were you running? Just the merinos. It was all merinos, so sort of medium to broad wool, medium wool merinos, I suppose. And did you have people, so you said like they, I guess, required a fair bit of supervision. Were there people that kind of camped out and lived with them? Or did you just go out from the home yeah, for each day yeah, and check the, on them? Yeah, we camp, they camped out a fair bit. Not all the – no, there, there, there wasn't shepherds, obviously, when I was a kid, you know, back in the 70s, but – um since but the there was a lot of ca- there's a lot of camping out, like the fences that all camp out for weeks on end and that kind of thing. And yeah, yeah. just to clarify, it's the 1970s, not the 1870s. The 1970s. <laughs> no, just kidding. It's too early in the morning to be hanging shit on you. Sorry. What do you remember of your childhood? Like, what what were you like as a kid? Oh, we were just we were just down the river constantly and out and about. We we we, we were only here when we needed to be. We were always somewhere else. Yeah, running from tree to tree because the sand was too hot to sort of, yeah, that kind of thing. Like most bush kids, I suppose. And were you put to work from an early age? Uh, yeah, we or were not all, put yeah. to work, but you know what I yeah. mean? Like you had the opportunity to. Yeah, we, yeah, yeah, we were out mustering and all that sort of stuff from pretty young. I didn't love it. I sort of grew into it, but yeah. So what was it about it that you didn't love at first? Oh, I guess like any kid, long hot days and. <laughs> the smell but, of sheep. Yeah, yeah no, I, 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 I didn't mind sheep. I mean, I, I quite enjoyed shearing time and stuff, but I certainly prefer cattle. Mm. And when do you think that started to shift? You just said you, you grew into it, but how do you think that came, that evolved? I think just, you know, my school holidays, I'd, you know, be here and we'd always be doing stuff and whatever was going on, we were doing. So, yeah, I'd. I grew to like it, and that's always what I was going to do. So, so, so you knew from a young age that this is where you were going to end up and what you wanted to do. Yeah, I think I think so. I think um, that you know there wasn't there wasn't much discussion about that. Oh, like, I, like I think I think most kids just you were coming back to the property, and that's what you were doing. So, so it was I'm just, glad I did now. I mean, I'm, I'm you know I, I enjoy really enjoy this lifestyle, and I certainly enjoy my kids growing up here and stuff. So. So would it have been assumed on your behalf or on both you and your parents' behalf, like you will come back and run the show or not? Or if you'd wanted to go and do something else, how would that have been taken? Oh, I think, you know, I think in most rural families it was assumed. That's just what you did. You just you just returned to the property and and took it over. And I guess, you know, a lot some kids went and did other stuff, but I don't then the property would be sold and that part of the family history would be gone. So I'm in a lot of ways, you know, I'm glad it worked out that way because we're still here and this is this is a home and we love it. Do you have siblings? Yeah, I've got a sister. Okay. So it was kind of, I guess though that must feel, and I, I'm sure this would translate or be um, a lot of people would be able to relate to this, feel a sense of um, not pressure, well, I guess maybe pressure but responsibility and like it's a lot to um, – to think that, yeah, if I don't want to to do this, it's one thing to say, like, if your dad's an accountant and you're like, oh, I don't want to be an accountant like my dad and my granddad, cool, whatever. But when it's tied to a, an asset, or, you know, and a landscape and something that's so much more than just a job, there is kind of a bit more riding on your shoulders that if you decide 
no, I do want to go do something somewhere else. That, like you just said, you lose that. Yeah, that legacy. That legacy's gone. That's so, a lot. So there, I mean, I guess there is, but um, but it's good, right? Because you know, in this uncertain world, here we are out here. It's 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 a pretty good, you know, it's a pretty good place to be when <laughs> things as as things seem to go more and more pear shaped. You know, it's it's um it's one you know it's a wonderful thing for for a family that. You know, you can hold, you can have something like this and it's, it's worth all the, you know, it's worth all the hard years and, and times that you held onto it that you wish you were just, you know, down in Perth with everyone else working out of an air conditioned office or something like that. Because, you know, you, when you need it, you, you end up with it. And I mean, I know, I know it's, it's all only leasehold land, but, but it's still, you know, it's our business and our home and, and, and I guess it's a safety net for the family. Did you ever consider anything else? Because it, it just is a lot of when you're when you're weighing up options and decisions and and like you know making making your pros and cons list. Like it is a, a lot. There's like a lot of weight in that idea of yeah. Mm. If you don't choose this, then you don't have the option necessarily of. It's not like you can leave home and come back in ten years' time and. Take, oh, like, that it never be, works. Yeah. I mean, you know, I saw a lot of kids that sort of left and. You know, I never quite got round to coming back in time and the place got sold and that was the end of it. And, you know, now they're families that live in the city like everyone else. But, um, yeah, look, I went and did accounting at uni, but uh, always, with the, <laughs> always with the intention of coming back here. That's so <laughs> funny because I didn't know that and I just picked accounting <laughs> before. I was like, it's not like if you were an accountant and your dad was an accountant. I just pulled that out of thin yeah, air. Yeah. Oh, don't worry. It's pretty boring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but something that would be very important in this line of work. I mean, you think, you know, you've got to be good at, you know, fixing fences and machinery and working with animals, but running the books is. That's why I did it. Yeah. yeah. That, that's why I chose that. And, and also there wasn't really an ag course that suited in WA that suited the, the ag courses were all plant science and soil science. So there wasn't really anything that suited this um, type of business. And there probably still isn't really. I mean, it's, this is a learn on the job business, isn't it? I mean, there's not many core. I mean, there, I guess there's a few in Queensland, but there's not many courses that are dedicated to beef cattle. No, not at all. Really. Yeah. And, and certainly none that are dedicated to pastoralism. So it it's, is. A, it's a learn. It's a, it's a do something else. Get one of the other skills if you want to, if you want to go to uni or, or learn one of the side skills of this business, but actually running the business, you got to learn it doing it. So how how has that journey been for you, learning it on the go? Um, yeah, yeah, long road, lots of mistakes. <laughs> I wish someone had just I, – I, actually, I wouldn't it, – it'd be good if someone had write a book with all the – just a book of mistakes because I could have saved a lot of time if I had, a, you know, all the mistakes I may have written down in a book somewhere. <laughs> Are there any that you care to share with us? <laughs> oh, just the way you – just, you know, and, and you know, I had – I had dad and, and he obviously had a book of mistakes as well, but you still just, just the way you went about the, you know, managing the landscape and where you put fences and how you did that and, you know, how you put in, how you ran cattle and all that sort of stuff. There's, you, you learn, you just, you just learn a lot along the way. And then looking back at the end of it, you realize, geez, I could have saved a lot of time if I'd have just jumped to this point a bit sooner. Do you think though that if somebody had handed you that book of mistakes, you would have actually really read it and taken it on board or is it something that you kind of have to live through and learn or at least some of them and actually just like learn the lesson yourself? Yeah, I guess you're right. I mean, it's with, you know, all that stuff. All of, of you, You've you got to be ready to hear what 
what you need to do, don't you? So, yeah. For people who have never been to this part of the world, can you tell me or tell our listeners about this region and what the country's like, you know, what kind of plants you have? Just, I mean, I, I went out for a drive yesterday and was, I'd never, you know, for all of the rangelands I've travelled, there was this patch, which I'm sure you would know, it's where the spring was. There was these kind of rocky outcrops and I'd never seen like that kind of like that little patch of country before. It's so interesting. So yeah. can you give us a, a paint a picture of Linden? Well, we're, I mean, we're really diverse here. So we've got, you know, we've, we've got the get the typical Gascoigne Gibber Plains. We've got a fair bit of that, but then we run into the, um, you know, the Pilbara type hard spinifex clay country. And then on the west side, we've got the spinifex sand dunes that you see you know, over towards the coast and probably in the desert, we've got a bit of that as well. And then we've got, you know, river country and wash country. So we've got uh, – the east side's quite hilly, you know, granite hills and shale outcrops. And so, yeah, we've got a real – we've got a real mix of country here at Linden, probably more so than most, which is, which is you know, which is a positive and a negative. It takes a bit more management, but it certainly gives you more options when things go pear-shaped. So if we can go back through those and kind of do, I guess, a bit of a dictionary or an explanation. So I actually only learned for the first time this year what a gibber flat is. Mm-hmm. And so if people haven't listened to that episode, can you explain what is a gibber flat? Or so gibber mostly quartz rocks in the Gascoigne. So just rolling plains and, and, you know, they're slightly undulating and, um, and lots of little quartz rocks scattered all over them, all like, almost like someone scattered them there. Um, and then they've got, you know, little creeks. You know, grassy creeks running through them and stuff like that. But and further over in the East Gascoigne, it's mostly sort of a black gibber. Um, I haven't spent a lot of time over there, but you know, this is white gibber, so quartz rocks. And so yeah. it's basically just like little ro- rocks, kind of like if you a look plain at- stream with little rocks is what it is. Yeah. Okay. As you as you would have seen driving in the end. Just- yeah. I was only yesterday. You, mm. you think I'd be able to recall my memory, but I can't. <laughs> so when I was in South Australia, what they referred to as gibber, I'm not just thinking, are we describing the same thing? It was like, say you look out at a flat and it's like all rocks, but, and they're kind of all smooshed together, kind of like, like compacted. No, no, here it's like someone's put them there, like someone's just scattered them there. Okay. So they're kind of loose. Yeah. Okay. Cause yeah. I'm thinking more like not bitumen, obviously, but like, like they kind of, um, like heaps of rocks and they're all kind of like, uh, not rounded, but they almost felt like they'd been like, what do you call it? Buffed or round? Yeah. Polished. Well, we get some of that. We get like in the, in the crab hole country, they're, they're yeah. rounded rocks because of all the, all the years of the crab holes churning and that sort of thing. So I think if they're rounded generally, it means it used to be a river or a crab hole or there was yeah. water moving. So, okay. So when a lot you- of our planes is more sharp, more of a sharp gibber. Yeah. So when you walk over these, it is, it would make like quite a crunching sound and like they'd move around a bit and it's kind of like walking through a pile of gravel or something like loose, like it's loose. Well, they're not even that, they're, they're even more scattered than that. I oh, yeah. okay. So it's not even that dense. Interesting. Yeah. We'll yeah. have to take some pictures and put mm. it up. Now. So people often ask if someone put the rocks there. Like just went around and look, scattered them. <laughs> scattered them out. Oh that's what gosh, it looks I'm, like. I'm going to have to go and have another look today. And, that, and that's most, that's quite a big portion of the Gascon is that kind of country. That's so interesting. Mm. And so what's in between the rocks then, though? Sorry, is, is grass growing? Yeah, like, yeah. Okay. And, and, but, um, and, you know, not so much perennial grasses on the hard plains, so sort of your annual grasses. So they, 
you know, it's a lot of it's reasonably hard country. We'll have to put some links in the show notes to this episode for people to be able to um, go and see what what it is we're describing. Yeah. And then, so the next thing I'd I'd like to ask you to explain is well, crab holes. So, what what is a crab hole? So crab holes are, are, are well, Gil guys the other name for them, but it's a churning clay. It's like a, it's a it's almost like black soil. Is it like a sinkhole? Yeah. Yeah, it's almost like black soil, but it, but it's um they're that rich in nutrient that that um you know from from the early days they're that they're that rich in uh, grass and um, nutrients and different plants that that when the that they actually churn as the as all the nutrients go down they actually churn and the soil rolls back up. Obviously, you can't see them doing that. That's over a long period of time, but. And and the and the trouble with crab holes is is in the early sheep days if they were bared, like if if you had too many sheep, which people did because there was no way to get rid of sheep, right? So in droughts, you couldn't just say, "I oh, will send ten thousand weathers to Perth." You know that was that was a pretty tough thing to do. So so there was you know there was times where there was in droughts where there was way too many sheep, and they'd eat all the all they they'd bear the crab hole and eat all the plant base off it, and then the crab then the it'd stop churning and it'd die and just turn into hard baked clay and they end up like a clay pan and they, they want to come back you've just got to let them you sometimes they need you know a little bit of earthworks or something to get them rolling but but there's you know this country um had a lot of you know would have been a lot more productive than it is now because it would have had vast areas that are now gibber plains that were gibber plains dotted with crab holes and, and we're and we're starting to see them come back now you'll just see in the middle of a Bare flat, you'll just see a you know a cryptogram or a little bit of clayey look with a couple of Robin Plains grass or something on it, and that's a that's a crab hole trying to come back to what it used to be. It's barely seven o'clock in the morning, and I've already learned so much today. <laughs> Especially this, well, just this concept of churning. I was like, what? Why? Like, I'm just imagining like like this, yeah, churning going on. But like you just said, it goes okay, so it goes over a long period of time. And yeah, because yeah, right. I was yeah. like. Whoa, imagine driving out in a paddock and just seeing like, the ground move. That's yeah, what I'm thinking. Yeah. And so what is the size scale of a crab hole? Are we talking like something that's like the size of a dinner table or are we talking oh, no, like, a like some couple of couple hundred metres? Yeah, yeah. Okay, and, so and, it's a and, they'll, and they'll end up with a big and, – and the middle of it will be a big pool of water. Oh, okay. Then, so is yeah. it like – so is it a, a depression in the yeah, country? Yeah, the middle of the crab holes ends up a depression and, and, you, and you'll get – and that's and that's the trouble with crab holes a bit as well as they hold water for a long period of time, so they attract more livestock and kangaroos and more grazing it's a sweet pressure. Spot. It's a sweet spot. It's so. the dessert bowl rather than the vegetables. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So they're hard to manage because even if you're you know within a paddock, they'll that little area will suck. That's where the animals will go and live. You know, even if you've got a watering point there, they'll prefer to go and live on the crab hole when the water's fresh. And I mean, you put me in they, front of a buffet and I go straight to the dessert end. Uh, that's what they do, and that's <laughs> why that's why crab hole country is hard to manage. But it, you know, it can be spectacularly productive. That's um, why do you think they call them crab holes? Uh, I'm not actually sure, to be honest. No, okay. I was just like, as long as I'm not going to find a crab out there, we're all good <laughs> because ironically, my star sign is Cancer, so it's the crab, and I'm freaking terrified uh, yeah, right, of those yeah, things. So yeah. Um, okay, and so you went. So we've we've done Giver Plains, Crab Holes. Uh, you said what was the other type? You said something about um, granite outcrops. Granite yeah. outcrops. And yeah. what was the other part? Oh, what what's the significance of like river country when you say that? Oh well, you like, know, in the, the the rivers are fairly rich in this part of the world, I suppose. Um, so 
uh, the, you know, not, most of the big rivers will have a, a nice big grassy plain on either side of them. And, but and it's not a permanent running river though, is it? Uh, not around here, but there is some permanent pools in them. Really? Yeah. And so where does – so because I'm thinking, so like down south, you know, a lot of the rivers, you know, Swan River or anything coming off that, they they might have water in them all year round. But if we were to go to the river today, it's bone dry, Yeah, well, most of and, and But, the, you know, the, the most of the linden's not really – doesn't because it's not sort of a rocky – we're not a really rocky area, so down this bottom end. So the linden doesn't hold much permanent water, but the Yanri River does. That's okay. got quite a few permanent pools. Where the, you know, where the water rushes around corners and – has sort of scoured out against the rocks, and there's there's play, there's pools up there that you sort of can only just touch the bottom sort of thing. There's some pretty couple of pretty deep pools in the Yanri. So can you tell me? So it sounds like you've got like you said, it's a good mixture of country, um, which can make it can provide some challenges in managing for those different different circumstances and um, constraints of the different country types. Is it better suited to sheep or cattle? Or oh, both? definitely cattle. Yeah. Okay. And so, why is that? Uh, well, it's just the way sheep graze. I mean, it, it, they've got to be managed because they're so hard on country. The way you know the way they the way they're, they're more browsers than grazers. You know, so cattle can only eat what they can get their tongue around, sort of thing. So they don't go and nibble grass right down and pull it out by the roots and that sort of thing so much. So, so, so it's and, and you know, and it's country that grows grass because um, you get further east and you get the frost and those kind of things and. They, you know, they're more shrub country because they struggle to grow grass and cattle, you know, are better suited to, you know, sh- gra- well, we're not grasslands, but we're a mix. We're, a, we're shrub, we're shrubs and grasses together. So would it be a fair comp- uh, analogy to say, so when you're describing the, the differences of cattle and sheep grazing and their impact on the country, the cattle will like, say, finish their bowl of ice cream and leave a spoon in there and the sheep are in there like, licking the bowl until it's like dead clean like kind they're, of, they're kind of kind they're, of. they're, I mean, they're you gonna know, try you've... and eat more like well and and go you know oh, oh yeah like you're scraping the bowl and getting you know off a lasagna tin yeah. or something can you really get the bits out whereas cattle will leave a bit more behind oh, i guess so something like that i mean <laughs> don't no, mind like, me all, this all, is how my brain all, works. An, all animals will choose those ice cream plants first yeah yeah also we'll say cattle that. certainly aren't as hard on country sheep are okay in that respect yeah that's just or sheep or goats so it, you've just said this this country is better suited to cattle, but for many, you know, decades upon decades, it ran sheep. Why did you make the transition from sheep to cattle? Well, I think you know, a lot of people say, say dogs, um, but I think you know we when we changed, we we didn't have much of a dog burden. I, th- I think it was it was um, obviously the terms of trade on sheep went out the window with the with the wool price crash and all that sort of thing in the. Was that in the eighties? Yeah, late eighties. Yeah. So um, for for people that I mean, whether or I mean, we've say we've got young listeners that weren't even alive in the eighties, or people that just if they were alive in the eighties may not have, you know, been interested or had access to this. Um, I'm trying, you know, might have been just jamming out to NXS instead. What happened in the eighties? So there was a floor pie scheme with wool. So um, the wool board, whoever it was, would buy wool at a at a base price, so you're always guaranteed a base price, and they just didn't move quickly enough with the times. And, and the, you know, the, there was an oversupply and an under-demand. You know, demand was slipping in the well because of synthetic fibres and that sort of thing. And um, so they kept buying this wool at 
I think it was 870 cents or whatever the floor price was, and they end up with a massive, massive stockpile. So at some point they had to let that stockpile go onto the market and there was a massive wool crash and wool was worth very, very, it was just, it was very badly managed. And, and, but, but it was basically an oversupply. There was an, you know, there was an oversupply of wool and, 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 fa- and falling demand and, um, and wool were, ended up worth, being worth very little, which, uh, I know there's been the same thing with the cattle market. There was the cattle market crash in the 1970s as well, but wool was just, it, wool was just very, sheep are very expensive to run. They're very labor intensive. Got to have a lot of infrastructure. You've got to keep them fenced in really small paddocks and. Well, you know, when I say small paddocks, I'm talking, you know, eight by eight Ks or six by eight Ks or something. But in terms of the rangelands, we would have had 40 or 50 paddocks here. So what- a lot of work. Earlier in this episode, you described, you know, uh, uh, sheep stations back in like, say, the 30s as gold mines around the 20s. And then within less than, like, say, 50 years, it's kind of gone oh, we'll the other work, way. We'll, we'll with, with our gold mines in the 50s and 60s, you know, that was when we were clothing the Red Army sort of thing. So, And then all of a sudden it's just yeah, the yeah. other way around. Yeah, it was like a Kodak moment almost, almost wasn't it? I don't know if it's, some, yeah, probably a memory you want to catch. It. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, wool's still, wool still a, um, a niche product and worth a lot of money, but only because the demand, you know, the supplies dropped dramatically and, People are supplying into a niche product now. I mean, we're not clothing the world. Wool isn't clothing the world anymore. Sort of nylon and cotton's clothing the world. Wool's become a niche product and you get demand and supply right. And it's still a really good business. And wool's a really good business for some people. But, but at the point, you know, as far as it, it was a bit of a Kodak moment for wool because all of a sudden people were choosing other fire, you know, there were cheaper fibers. So how old would you have been at the time when you transitioned from sheep to cattle? So I just got home from school and uni. I just finished school and uni and we started, so we started transitioning in 1990 and we're pretty much all cattle by 2000. So how, so so that was going to be my next question. Is this something you just do one big muster and kind of get all the sheep off in a year? Maybe obviously, you know. Well, some people did, but we didn't. I mean, we still didn't know which way we were going to go. We were sort of, we didn't know whether we'd end up up. Half sheep or half cattle or what we do and, and that, and a lot of the, a lot of the gas coin was like that. We just started to transition and, and, you know, the market forces took us to all cattle. What, what are your memories of that period of, you know, were you, were you, it was, I know you said they, they're more expensive to run and they're harder to run, but were you, did you get like sentimental and was it a bit sad saying goodbye to the sheep or were you like bye Felicia? Like? Yeah, yeah, no, no, we were a bit bye sheep. <laughs> <laughs> we oh, don't, ha- don't let the door hit you, you on the way out. Go. They, they were just, and, and changing over was a lot of work because you had cattle around sheep infrastructure, so. And so what, what, you know, and, and, and our sheep infrastructure was getting fairly run down because there'd been no money in it and dad had bought out partners and, so, you know, the joint was getting fairly run down, just not, not, not through anyone, not working hard, just through, um, you know, financial difficulties. The sheep, um, yeah, sheep weren't generating. And, and then, and then you have sheep and cattle together and you've got, you know, reasonably run down infrastructure anyway and cattle are smashing up sheep infrastructure and it was just, it was a very, very busy time. So what? Yeah, it was long days. Can you describe, you know, you say sheep and cattle infrastructure. What, what is that and what are the differences between what you need for sheep and cattle? Well, it, it's, you know, I, I, I suppose it's fairly, 
it's fairly basic. You just need, you know, everything's more robust with cattle. You need a bigger trough with, you know, bigger flow into it and, and you need to protect the float valve better and you need to, you know, fence off, you know, put fences around your solar pumps and windmills and stuff like that. But, you know, we had, you know, back in the sheep days, we had 90 watering points. So, you know, it was a fairly big job to do that at every one. How many? Without, without much, you know, with, without much money behind us. So I guess the other thing is when, when you were transitioning to cattle, did you have many here to start with? Or I guess I'm just thinking it's, it's kind of cool starting from scratch in a way. You know, often if people take over a property these days, you know, whether it's managing or buying one, you've got decades upon decades of, you know, other people's decisions that are coming through the yards or, you know, you drive out and you're seeing other people, whereas you're kind of getting to start from. Yeah, look, all we had when we actually changed, um, we'd sort of run cattle a little bit through the years on and off and traded cattle. But when we changed, all we had was some feral cattle up the top end. So kind of made life harder, actually. <laughs> but today, <laughs> pretty hard to catch. But, um, uh, and you know, it was just, it was just hard work. I mean, cattle, the cattle market wasn't super buoyant, but we were still buying cows for sort of $300 each. And at the end, we were selling our best ewes. That, that had, you know, years and years of breeding and careful culling in them for $4 each. So it wasn't much fun. Sorry, the whole animal, you mean $4 a kilo or $4 for the- $4 each. So you could sell so a, a whole a, adult female sheep for $4. And that's after, you know, and, and that was one of, you know, that was the nucleus flock that was left at the end after we'd, you know, obviously as you get out of something, you sell your culls and- $4 so, for a sheep. Yeah. By the time well, there, it was a while in the nineties, there was no money for sheep, and people were shooting sheep. Like the only way to keep your numbers down going into a drought was to shoot them. If you sold them for four dollars each, soul destroying. By the time you truck them to wherever you sold them, oh, to oh, that's like, four dollars landed. So you oh, get four okay, bucks. you get four dollars mm. after you pay. I had wow, four dollars. <laughs> four dollars. Yeah. It makes the, the it was, and and, beer, and a midi of beer was two dollars in, so it was two midis of beer for a sheep. It just, you look at like that loose change menu on the Macca's like drive through where you can like, you know, or, or a gold coin. It gives mm. a whole new meaning to a gold coin yeah. donation. Obviously yeah, this is, you know, 30 years ago. And so, you know, inflation or whatever, you know, things are a little bit different. The value of money is a little bit different, but $4 and this is just in the nineties. Like you couldn't. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't much fun. That's probably. That was like, late nineties. That was probably like a lot. I mean, early two thousands, I worked at McDonald's and like. Five dollars would buy you like a medium mm. meal back in those days. Yeah. So yeah, you no, could, no one wanted cheap. That's I just oh that kind of stuff drives me wild. Because mm. the the I mean goats were the same people. You know we goats are worth a fortune now. We all shot. We used to you know we don't have a goat, goats anymore because we've got dingoes. But but we used to shoot. You know we used to actually go out to shoot mobs of goats with dogs and a couple of rifles and a team of dogs and that's the way we used to control grazing pressure from goats. I just, I just, uh, yeah. Anyway, this is my outrage for the day. Four dollars for a sheep, like that's, mm. that's you know, it's just, uh, at least you know they've just changed that. Um, have you seen the big supermarkets have just um, canned the dollar a liter for milk and? Mm. I see that. Oh. Yeah, that had to happen, didn't it? Yeah. Four dollars for. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> I would have been the crazy sheep lady. I would have gone and bought like a hundred and just. Mm. Well, you'd be happy. If you could... did. You'd be happy if you did now. Yeah. They're worth a bit again. But that's demand and supply, right? You know, oh, the, the market's leveled out again and, yeah. And so, but, you know, it's the same with cattle in the seventies. I mean, dad was buying steers for 16 bucks in the seventies and stuff like that. 
So I I guess when you were kind of choosing, you know, do we go, do we stick with sheep or do we move, you know, to pretty much just cattle? Uh, and you said, so obviously sheep, but you, you know, you said, so in the eighties, there was the, the wool price debacle, but you said as well in the seventies, there was a cattle market crash. So you've, you've got the knowledge that both of these industries are not necessarily secure and they're both, um, susceptible to big, Mm. you know, financial disasters. Was it just that cattle were, not as labour intensive and 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 and, honest, and by the time we were getting towards the end of getting out of sheep, dogs are moving in as well. So that you know that really sealed it. You, you, the sheep have sheep have got a very low tolerance for dingoes. You yeah, know, you, don't, you yeah. don't need many dogs. And now, yeah. so with the dogs that you've got up here, are they are they like your um, pure dingoes, or are, are are they ones that or are they wild dogs, or are they dogs that were someone's pet that have escaped? I think, I think they average about eighty percent. And <laughs> I've actually done quite a few studies on that. Okay, yeah. so it's mostly dingo. And They're then mostly dingoes around here, yeah. 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 But they but you know, there's very few dingoes that are pure dingoes now. That's okay. what that that's what the study showed. There was a big study at UWA, all the doggers were sending, you know, samples in for DNA testing and that sort of stuff and and there's very few pure dingoes anywhere in the managed rangelands. So most of them have got us either a good dollop of domestic dog or a splash. And so yeah. do you still have a problem with dogs today? Yeah, they're, they're always a, something that needs managing. We, um, we, you know, we get quite a lot of calves that get bitten and stuff like that in droughts in, um, but it, you know, it's an interesting thing and it's, a, it's just, it's such an interesting debate. Um, I'm certainly in the camp that, uh, if managed well, dogs are good for the whole, you know, the whole balance. So. Uh, since we've got out of sheep, everything's been able to get back in balance a bit because you can have some dog burden, and it's, you know it's the old thing with it. You know, having the having the the alpha, you know, the the, the alpha predator in the system. Um, that's the way the system's meant to be. I know dingoes have only been in Australia for about four thousand years, but, um, but you know, they, they've, they've got rid of all the they've got rid of all the goats. They keep the kangaroo numbers right down. Uh, all the foxes are gone. Dingo, we don't have foxes anymore. We used to. Um, uh, cat numbers are dramatically lower than when I was a kid before we had dingoes. So everything's back in balance, but you've just got to be really careful that I get into massive packs or they, and, and also, you know, it's a, it's a management thing as well, right? Because, um, you've got to be really, you've got to be thinking that all the time that you need to keep some condition on your cows, because as soon as you get your cows, you know, your cows get down to a score one or something, the dogs can just, go to town on the calves because the cows can't defend them. So um, if you, you know, if you can keep your cows strong, you're going to be able to put up with a fair dog burden. And then at the same time, that dog burden is going to be keeping your kangaroos numbers down and keeping your, you know, your total grazing pressure down. So there's, you know, arguments for both, but I certainly, um, I certainly believe the argument that you do need some, um, that some burden of, uh, an alpha predator is good for the good for the whole mix. So basically, there is a I suppose a time and a place for dogs in appropriate numbers. So in cattle country, in cattle very country, very difficult in small stock units, and there's there's they can't coexist very well with small stock units because it's just too easy for them to. Yeah, they just kill lambs. Well, you know, yeah. the dogs. You know, you've. When, when we first started getting waves of dogs and we had massive roo numbers that we used to have, um, you'd go to a watering point sometimes and you wouldn't be able to find a bit of ground to step on to get to the trough to clean the trough for dead kangaroos. Dogs just wipe them out. 
Okay. So, so given the option of having no dogs at all or a small, well, not necessarily a small number, but a, but a number that is appropriate that keeps things in balance. So they're there to kind of, you know, keep, um, you know, kangaroos and other marsupials and whatever, you know, in line and not hopefully not completely decimate your cattle. Like, so there, there is a role for them in the right balance. Absolutely. So, it's, so I guess anything absolutely. in life, it's all about yep. balance. Yeah, absolutely. Cause yep. it is a very polarizing and divisive, topic for people, whether it's in the pastoral community um, or people not involved, you know, anybody in Australia, no matter what you do, it, it can be a very divisive topic. Absolutely, so, yeah, it is, yeah, absolutely. And, um, both sides of the argument have got to realise that, that, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a right level and, and the others, you know, <laughs> just, you, yeah. you, you can't, you can't just let dogs breed and, you know, breed as they will and, and turn it, you know, get into big packs and massive numbers because they will kill all your cars. And and then it, and then I reckon it, it goes back to a little bit of the behaviour of your cows too. So like I, I reckon if if you're you know you keep your cows in a good mental state and uh, you know you don't chase them around and blow them in with helicopters and they're not frightened of you that they tend to if they if they're reasonably um, if if they're not stressed. With humans who are, we're a predator, right? They know we're a predator. Our eyes are in the front of their, our head, so they know we're a predator. But so if, so if they'll put up with, um, if they're not too stressed by humans being around, they'll have, they'll generally be less stressed with all predators. So cows will tend to turn and, so, uh, so more relaxed cows will tend to turn and turn around to dogs and, you know, and fight. Oh, okay. I yeah. was wondering. Oh, that, well, that's my theory. I, I think. Yeah. I think that. Um, you know, I think if you've got cows that are used to running from humans and you blow them in with helicopters and they're terrified and they're rattled, uh, if they see a dog, they'll run and the dog will get the calf. Oh, okay. If, I was. If, if you've got de-stressed cows, they'll tend to pack up and and turn and defend and the calf. turn and stare down that dog and yeah. And def- oh, so there's a okay. whole holistic thing there, I reckon, with dogs and cows. There's, there's more. There's more than first meets the eye. Interesting. And I do, I do need to do an episode on this on our other podcast, the cattle station classroom. But so something you've said just then is, so a good way to tell if an animal's predator or prey is the position of the eyes. So predators have forward facing eyes. Prey animals have eyes on the side of their head. Yeah. So like for peripheral vision to watch out for predators. Yeah. Do you think if we started working with cattle and we wore these like goggles that made it look like our eyes were on the side of our head rather than in front? How do you think? And I just, ha- I've just, it's just popped into well, my head. Well, I think it depends how good at actors we are because we move like a predator, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. So, so cattle look at all our body language and the way we move, and they say predator. Yeah. So, okay. And the and the guys that are great, the guys the the guys that are real really good at working cattle, are guys that can make it look like they're not a predator. So you know, they learn. You learn to. You have to learn to move like you. You know, you don't. You don't. You don't walk in circles and, you know, you don't circle around your cattle and you don't come in behind them because that's what predators do. So predators always come in behind a flight animal because... That's their blind spot. Then it has to run in a circle to see him, right? So mm-hmm. blind, so flight animals always want to see what's chasing them. So the predator will come right in behind so the animal can't run straight and see you. So the animal will run in a circle and then the other predator will come in when the animal's worn out and... That is, um. So that's the things when you're working cattle, you have to be aware that, you know, you're not working in curves and you're trying to stay, you know, not in that, not in that blind spot at the back. 
there is a whole other episode we need to record here because I, I, and I'll, I'll save that for maybe a cattle station classroom episode. Um, but that is very interesting because that is something that, you know, is kind of the opposite is what is pushed a lot is working, you know, getting a curved race and working animals in curves and, Oh, you've given me so much to think about. Yeah. But, oh, wow. This is cool. This is good. And then, and then, yeah, that the whole thing comes in with the tubs and the curved race and, you know, yeah. that, which is, which is the way the industry's gone. But is it the right thing? Really is going to make you have a lot. Yeah. Question. Um, a lot of what well, I mean, there's been, there's been a lot of positive change initiated by like, you know, Temple Granite's work, but yeah. It, just some of these things you said now will make you, you know, it's kind of like we've taken it and then run with it and then that's it. Like that's as good as it gets, but makes well, we you don't wonder. We're like training if- ourselves, do we? We'd rather, no. you know, we, as managers, we'd rather put in a big flash expensive setup than having to work on how we do something. Yeah. So temple ground and stuff works really well if you don't want to train the trainers. If you don't, if you don't want to change the way you work cattle, but you want it to flow well, you put in a tub. Yeah. If you're prepared to go the, you know, throw away everything you've always known about working stock and and go, throw away all your instincts because all your instincts will make you work them like a predator and 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 change the way you do everything and then maybe you won't put a tub in. This is absolutely fascinating. Um, don't worry, I'll be back in February. We might just do a whole livestock handling episode. Oh, there's, but, oh you've got better people to talk to about that than me. You know, no, well, maybe I'll maybe do get it. get onto a Jim Lindsay or a Bruce Maynard or something. Maybe I'll do like 10-minute <laughs> interviews with five different people and stick it all together for one episode or something. Yeah. But we're definitely going to pick this up again. Tell, I know So you are particularly passionate about livestock handling to the point that you put on, I know, you know, it's, it's not uncommon for big company places in the territory and the Kimberley and Queensland to put on livestock handling schools for their, you know, when they get 10 year ringers at the start of every year and whatnot. Here, like, it's not the same number of people on working on your property, but you still put on a livestock, you get somebody in to teach that. How does that work? Do you get like neighbors in as well? And yeah, yeah. People, what, what made you want to do that? Other people come. I just, I mean, the, the, the guy that, that comes over is, you know, a good friend and he likes coming back and he loves spreading the word. So, so he, you know, if he can, he come back every, come, often he comes here on some other project or doing something else. He's always got projects and stuff going on and we'll just fold a livestock handling school. And even if you've got two people that sort of pick up the way you're trying to do stuff, I think it's worthwhile when because you- it's pretty hard. You know, it's pretty hard in a working cattle in the yards when everyone's not on the same page. And it, and 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 it, it and it's pretty hard to when you get new people in the yard saying oh we do it like this when they haven't had the chance to learn why you do it like that. So they they sort of you know they'll kind of do it but they'll be going what the hell am I doing? And it- so you know you you really need to sit down from the start and do all the building blocks of why we're doing these stupid looking things in the cattle yards that <laughs> that feel really uncomfortable because it's not what we naturally want to do. So it feels silly. You know, your what you you said just then about you know like you kind of need to get in there beforehand because it, it can be you know everyone has different styles and even um and that it can be a really uh like a weak spot I suppose in where breakdowns in communication can happen and frustrations can arise if you know you're trying to work cattle one way and then I mean I can certainly vouch for that you know like I've got a way I do things and if I see someone else in the yards doing it how I don't like it done. Mm. You, you start building resentment or frustration and then, you know, it can all go downhill from there. Yeah, yeah. 
But you that'll pick up on that pretty quick too. Yeah, um, put a bit of stress among the humans and see how your cattle go. I um, I want to ask you. You floated an idea over the past few years. So you said you know it's important to get everyone on the same page. Generally, livestock handling schools are adults, but you've kind of floated the idea about having it for kids. Well, yeah, we've tried to. We've tried to, but with, with Bruce Maynard, but then he, he was really keen on doing a, a kid's school and we sort of thought, you know, it'd even be great to do a kid's school and then even have a set for, you know, a school of air set or a, on animal like some behavior. Curriculum. So yeah, so the kids that are, that are going through school of air and wanting to, knowing that I'm going to come back to the bush one day, they're learning some valuable skills that, you know, so that, that'd be good. But it's ever since we floated the idea, Bruce hasn't been able to get over here, obviously. Oh, COVID, yeah. So, yeah. Well, um, but I think kids' livestock handling skills would be awesome. They'd have to, you know, they'd they'd, they'd be they'd be a you know a mix of fun stuff and you know, but I think it'd be great. I think there's a huge opportunity there because when you, while livestock handling schools for adults can be so valuable, you're really trying to break existing habits and ideas and beliefs and attitudes of things that have been formed over, you know, up until that point in time that I believe that this is how it should work or, you know, this is how I've been told it should work. This is just my, also my habits with kids. You've kind of got that putty to work Mm. with to to say, you know, you're not, because I think that's when you teach anyone, you know, like looking at adult education, it's not just teaching and transferring the skill, you've got so much else to kind of, mm. to get that adoption and to get people to, yeah, I mean, I could teach you how to, I don't know, do something today, and but to, to really, for you to want to continue doing it, there's so much more packed in behind that with kids. Yeah. They're like little sponges. That, yeah, they are. And, and really, a lot of us learn from the people we're taught, and I suppose the reason that livestock handling schools are kind of becoming a thing is that we're trying to get away from you know, not not discrediting what people have done in the past, but trying to get new ways and doing that. But yeah, if you're if you're trying to get someone when they're already, in, I mean, it's not like you're a lost cause if you're in your thirties and forties. But yeah, if you can get them, you know, eight, ten. Yeah, you know, and I and I think you know, working livestock in a way is something that we've lost, probably lost um, over time too. Like I think, you know, way back, I think people were probably doing it better than we. We're doing it 20 or 30 years ago because we've added so many tools that have made it easy for us. You know, it's like adding a bit to a horse. You know, it's just a tool that you can use to make the horse do something. Whereas if you didn't have it, you'd have to work out, you know, how the horse, you know, it's it's like that, I suppose. Like having the weather app on your phone um, and wondering, is it going to rain when there's big clouds in the sky? Yeah. Yeah. The old time drovers would have had to. You know, they would have had to have a very high level of stock handling, but now we can just jam them, send them down a race where they've got nowhere to go except straight ahead and chuck them on a truck. It's easier, isn't it? We've, 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 we've all sort of probably let go a bit of stuff that maybe a couple of generations before knew because we've been out of, we've not had to have it. I think, so I think we've lost a bit of stuff and we, I think we're not so much we're doing it better than, Generations ago, I think I reckon we've lost a bit of stuff that we've had to sort of put back in the toolbox. I reckon, as an industry, I can see. I feel like the general consensus is that. Uh, I guess I guess can see how it may if you think we're doing things, e- or if they feel easier and or faster and more efficient, how that can be. Um, 
conflated with it being better. Absolutely. And yeah. that, you know, and that we've improved the stockmanship, whereas yeah. it's not necessarily, you know, like a causal relationship that just because things are going faster yeah. and yeah. You know, technically more efficient and what we used to do in three days, we can do before Smoko now. Yeah. yeah like you, you can. Yeah. And the, and the downside of that is probably two or three years away. Whereas you go to yard that cow up in the yard again, she don't want to go in the yard because the yard's not much fun. So, you know, so that there's a, there's a, it's a longer term effect. You can get away with that for quite some time being more efficient, but in the end, you can't be more efficient with animals because it'll come back and bite you in the long term. Well, I think the other thing that can kind of mask this is that there's such a high turnover of people in industry, not just like your, like your stockmen and your staff, but even managers to an extent in different areas that you may not be around to see those changes really over a long period of time as well. Absolutely. Like you're just there yeah. for a few years yeah. and then you're off to the next place and you didn't- And what about if you've got a mustering team and a yard team? If you're the mustering team and the gates are shut, the job's done. For the yard team, it's just begun. Yeah. And how the gates got shut is going to make a difference to whether it's dangerous in the yards or good in the yards, isn't it? Like Absolutely. Not how they got shut, but how the cattle went in there. Yeah, yeah. And so, you, you, yeah. yeah you're- so we, we, yeah, we can deforce ourselves from the results of what, how we've done it. You know, it's, the end doesn't justify the means. There's a, you know, it's, it's how you take the journey, isn't it? I think it's also sort of coming along with, uh, life, uh, landscape management as well in a way. So you say that like losing a bit of skill and again, coming back to this turnover of people, we used to have people on country for, you know, well, let's say your whole family's been here a long time, but you know, maybe somebody would stick in a manager's job for 30 years or longer and really now, uh, well, not necessarily in this part of the world because there is a lot of long-term like family history and people have been here generations, but, um, in other areas and you think you wonder what the, why well, I wonder what the knowledge being lost is that you might not notice that you might not know if you've been managing somewhere for five years that 30 years ago it looked really different. Yeah. You know, right. even 10 yeah. years ago, yeah. you're kind of, you've, you've in, the last, oh, I don't know how long, but for a while now, I've been quite in, interested in the uh, landscape function and um, restoration and regeneration. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of words I could use, but in that space, yeah. tell me about how you kind of ended up interested in that side of things. Well, I, I think it's the whole region, most of the Gascoigne, because, you know, we've come from a fair way back. You know, we, we this is a very unreliable climate and, like I said, people – you know, we, in the early years, ran a lot of sheep and had no, you know, no, I'm not having a crack at the people who were doing it then. They had no, when seasons turned bad, they had no way to get rid of them. Uh, and um, I think that's probably the difference with cattle is that you were always turning cattle over, weren't you? Like you were selling cattle. They had to be sold to get money from them. But sheep, you could just keep piling them up and cutting the wool off them until it stopped raining. And then, you know, it got very dramatic very quickly. And that's why I think, you know, that's why a lot of the sheep country and a lot of the Gascoigne and Murchison got very badly damaged in the sheep days, you know, and probably only in a handful of years. Most of the time it was probably all roses, but every now and again it had properly stopped raining for a couple of years and, you know, half the country would blow away and, and gutters would form and water had run down rivers and not, you know, not the water wasn't staying where it was meant to stay, so flats were drying out and thickets were dying and, all that sort of stuff. And I think, you know, we can all see the results of that. And, um, and I, I think since we've all sort of changed over to cattle, um, uh, you know, things are slowly turning around and going back the other way. And we've seen results of that, but, um, you can speed all that up a fair bit too by and not only mechanical regeneration, but, but 
mechanical generation tied with grazing management. Um, I think there's, you know, we most people in the gas go and see that there's big opportunities to really, to really impact the productivity of our properties. Like it might be fairly long term, but so um, most people are starting to think that way. And we and there's some awesome experts around that have spent a fair bit of time in this neck of the woods in the last five or ten years and been cruising around and telling, showing us what damage we've been doing with the way we've been grading our roads and how we can fix that and how we can hold water back on flats and how we can get crab holes churning again and all that sort of stuff. So I think, um, and, you know, it might not be in 10 years' time, but in probably, you know, 20 years' time, there's massive shifts in productivity to be had. So it's a bit of a no-brainer, really. My knowledge of this region and the people here is nothing compared to, say, Pilbara, Kimberley, whatever. but from what I've from the small amount of time I've spent in the gas coin and the people I've met and spent and spent time with, from my perspective, it's a really active, progressive, really active group of people though. Like you have this organization, the gas coin catchments group, you guys have built an app, um, like an app on your smartphone to be able to collect data and share it with other people. And, and it sounds like what you said, you know, there's been a lot of damage. I mean, the rangelands kind of everywhere. I've all had a taken a hit, but in this area and further south as well, you know, relative to other parts of Australia, really taken a hit. So it seems like it's, I guess, been born out of. Well, I mean, I just feel like I guess there's a few different factors coming in, and that you know, I think, um, like you know, there's a lot of families here that have been here. Is it right? Like a lot of families have been here for a while, so yeah, and people are planning on being here for the long term, so they want to obviously keep the country good. Uh, and they've seen it at its worst and they, they knew that things needed to change. Like, I don't know. It's just, it's, uh, yeah, it's just like all these things have come together that have kind of led to you all to where you are, but it would have been very easy to kind of not do anything as well. But tell me a bit about, um, this group, the Gascoigne Catchments group. And yeah, it's a very active community when it comes to land care and, and working on, yeah. uh, trying to yeah. repair the damage done by sheep back in the days. Well, I think, um, I think, you know, being in such an unreliable climate and, you know, it's, it makes this country very difficult to manage. So I think, and that, and that's why it's probably more susceptible to damage because, you know, you can, you can make a bit of it. You leave cattle in, you know, sheep, sheep or cattle in a paddock too long and do a bit of damage and then it doesn't rain for five years and that's all doubled down. Whereas, you know, maybe up in the Kimberleys you'll do a bit of damage, you get a couple of, you know, reliable rainfall seasons in a row and it's repaired. So, I think, I think that's, but it, but in a way that probably, might, you know, people, you, we have to think about it more and we have to work a bit harder on how we do stuff because we, we have got that set of challenges. And if we don't, you know, address those, you, you just can't go on autopilot or, or you're going to end up with, um, you know, in this country, you could, you could end up with not much productivity at all if you weren't careful. And so, so, you know, I think that's the reason why people have had to be fairly progressive. Around here, because it's not easy. Um, it's not easy country to manage. And I, yeah, so, so I suppose that's why the Gascon Catchment Group formed. We just formed out of three LCDCs, What's La- land care district committees. Mm-hmm. So we just, yeah. So LCDCs have kind of got too small. You know, there's not enough people around. Um, you know, an LCDC might be 10 stations or something. There's just, you're lacking enough people to, keep it moving and run it. So we, we thought, well, obviously it's better to throw a few of them together. You've got more 
you know, you got more people and you got more ideas and you got, you know, a bit more firepower. So, so that's what we did, you know, 12, 15 years ago. And, um, and, and we had fairly progressive LCDCs before that around here too, for the reasons I just explained. So yeah, that just make, it just makes it a bit easier to get more people on the ground and more good ideas. So that's what the Gascon catchment does. It, it's basically an NRM group. We do other things as well, but it is basically natural resource management. It's, it's really cool. You know, there's so, you know, a lot of the stories out there really do, like I said earlier, focus around other parts of the pastoral estate in Australia. But this is a very interesting area when you add combine. I mean, and everything is interesting in its own way. But when you say like, you know, any, I think people think any farmer or pastoralist, anybody in agriculture anywhere in this country is sort of a slave to the weather or at the mercy of the weather. Um, but it's not the same everywhere you go. You might be, um, you might be less, you know, in a really unreliable rainfall climate, you're almost in a way less at the mercy of the weather because we always manage that it's not going to rain. That it's not. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, we've, we've got big properties and, you know, vast areas and not many cattle and, you know, um, compared to other areas, compared to high productivity country further north. So we, um, we're kind of always managing, assuming it's not going to rain. So. And everybody. In a way, we're kind of maybe not at the mercy of the, the weather, weather as much as more reliable places where the holdings are smaller and it's, you you know, it's, you've got to keep productive. Yeah. Because so you, you don't, yeah. So you're just kind of like banking on it not raining. Higher. And then if you do get rain, it's a bonus. Yeah. yeah it's that's, a bonus. Kind of, that's how most people around here operate. And everyone here <laughs> has got, you know, I suppose like inherited degradation from, you know, whether it's, yeah, this, you know, whether everyone it's from has, them. Yeah. Yeah. Or previous owners or managers, you know, from decades ago, everyone's kind of inherited some land degradation that, yeah, they may have had nothing to do with um, bringing about. And, but and, even na- then- and natural erosion too. I mean, there's a, quite a bit of fall in all this upper Gascon country. It heads down towards the coast reasonably sharply. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's natural erosion to add to that as well, which is always going on. So, you know, you, you, it, you, you've uh, only got to bear an area a little bit and where there's a bit of natural erosion, you'll, you know, it'll start to run really quickly. And so. so what are you looking to do in this space on Linden? Oh, so we've sort of gone through and, and, and picked out, you know, the, um, as, as far as bang for your buck, we've sort of picked the lowest hanging fruit and we've done a, you know, that's what you do when you do an Ezrin plan or something like that. You go and you, you, you have a look at your whole property and you work out, you know, you're not going to go and spend fifty thousand dollars on a bit of scalded country out the back where there's only where you've only got you know hundred mil of soil or something like that. You're gonna because that's that that's your you know that's harder. You'll do that later on. You'll sort of pick your more productive areas where you can see the damage you've got and you know that productivity's there in that area and that's where you'll spend your money first. So, so, so that's the whole idea of having a bit of a plan when you start this thing. You're basically working out the best. The best bang for your buck for starters. Can you describe or can you explain what an Ezrin plan is? So an Ezrin plan, they they um, so a guy called for? Richard Marva does them, and it's all uh, ecologically sustainable resource management. So you'll get out the map of your property, um, and you'll start at the you know you'll start at the kitchen table with your map, and you'll put overlays, and you'll pick out all your most productive areas, and then you'll pick out all your most degraded areas, and then you'll pick out. Um, your lowest productive areas and your fire areas and all that sort of thing. And you get layer and layer and layer and layer on your map of overlays. Um, and then that it basically just draws out where you'd be best putting your 
first efforts, basically. And then you'll have this is this is one year, this is five year, this is ten year, and you progressively work out. And and, and then from that, um, and then you know guys like Richard Marver, and you know there's other guys like Hugh Pringle and Cole Stanton. They they will, they've got years and years of experience of working out. Uh, what certain problem, you know, how to fix certain problems because there's different ways to go about it um, depending on whether you've got a scalded flat or a gutter or, you know, what you're trying to fix. And then you go out to those areas that you've picked as being where you're starting and, and, and they'll tell you sort of the best way to go about restoring that area or returning productivity to that area. And it might not even be mechanical. It might just be, right, there's not much point burning diesel here. We'll just... You know, we'll put a fence around it and 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 uh, and give it plenty of rest. It might be, you know, it might be something like that, or it might be right. We need a whole series of ponding banks. We're gonna, you know, we're gonna get a loader out here for a fair while, or or a grader or something. So, and it's, the- it's a bit of both. It's not only burning diesel. So these plans also they're they're quite significant documents, aren't they? Yeah, and they're yeah. so it's not like a back of the envelope. You know, let's sit down over a beer or a cup of tea and you know, yeah, brainstorm a few ideas. And they're also from well, there's different levels. The Ezram's like that. The Ezram's a yeah. very detailed plan. I think and there's other ones that are that are that are much cheaper, but um, you know, there's you can do other plans that are much cheaper, but um, and less intensive. But you've got to sort of write all the ideas down yourself. You're getting the same level of knowledge, but you don't end up with a glossy document. So yeah, and that, that was you want to go. what I was just going to say next is they're not cheap either. It's a real investment. So mm. which shows yeah. that, you know, it, it is a, you know, a real, um, invest, well, yeah, investment in, in being able to repair country. So you've got, you've got an ESRIM plan and you've been working with some people. And so you've identified, um, you know, areas and, and projects to do on Linden. What are you working on at the moment? Uh, so we've, um, Oh, so we're we're a couple of stages into it. The, the, actually, one of the, one of the first things we did is is fenced off a couple of really fragile riparian areas, and they're and they're not big, you know. This is sort of a um, couple of hundred hectares, um, and and that'll as basically conservation areas. Although we probably will smash graze them in time, but we've we've just thought we there's a couple of spots we really need to you know take out of the system for a while. To protect them, and then and then there's other, you know, we're doing a bit of fencing. We're putting in another couple of holding paddocks so we can rotate all our all our weaners or all our followers, um, so we can get a you know good rotation on them. And then um, and then you know we bought a big loader and we're doing lots of you know, lots of check banks and ponding banks and and we're going around and fixing up all our roads because probably over fifty percent of our erosion problems started with roads, and that and that applies to most of the rangeland. So. So you've got to go on. One of the first things is to stop to stop the problem before you start fixing the problem. So one of the first things to go and fix all your roads. So you're actually, you know, you, the, you stop the rot before you start fixing the the you know the, the trouble it's caused. So anybody yeah. listening who wants to, I guess, get more of an insight into water ponding, we do have. By the time this episode comes out, we'll have an episode on our other podcast, Cattle Station Classroom. You know, that'll be 30 minutes and a bit more in depth. But for those who maybe don't want to listen to me for 30 minutes talk about water ponding, can you just give us an overview of, of so what you're actually doing out in the station, what it looks like and what it's achieving, just like the broad strokes? Oh, so ponding, ponding sort of holding, cat, holding, holding water back on an area. So it's, it's basically a big smiley face, a, a ponding bank. Like, like a above ground? Yeah, yeah, it might be a couple of hundred metres long. And it's um, 
So yeah. like, like a it's pile a, of dirt, I yeah, guess. It's kind a, of. it's a bank. It's a couple of hundred meters long, and it's in a and you survey it. So, like which, which got- sounds which sounds like a pain in the bum, but with a with a good laser level, it's actually pretty quick. You've got to make sure that both both sides of the smile are the same level, otherwise the water will just whip whip around one side and take your ponding bank out. And if you do it badly, you can actually cause more problem than you fix. So, you've got to be pretty careful about the country you do it in. But so, if we think if you got like a, a packet of flour or sugar, and you just kind of made a, tipped it out and made a smiley face on a table or your kitchen mm. bench or whatever and kind of smushed it together a bit so it kind of sits, you know, is a bit skinny, not skinny, but like yeah. so not that it's all over the whole bench, but kind of in like a – Yeah. Yeah, so that's kind of what that's it's like, a, but with – Not dirt. a bad way to describe it, yeah. I know. I'm yeah. terrible with these analogies. Like I can't yeah. – my brain immediately, anything, I'm like, how can I put this into another one? Yeah, yeah. So you're picking up the dirt in that shape and putting it into a bank and then you – you know, sort of level the bottom off the, of what you've done, so you're not causing erosion into that. And then, and then you know, the water with or more with check banks, the water will spill off the end of them. Then you sort of, you know, you you work the country so it spills off the way you want it to spill off, and 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 you want to slow it down so you don't want it spilling off in a channel. You want it spreading. If you're trying to slow water and spread water, basically, and in places hold water back. So it's not only ponding banks; they're one tool. A lot of it's check banks and woe boys and that sort of stuff. So this is just stopping water running. This is just the first episode that you'll be doing, Sean. So (laughs) (laughs) yeah, there's a lot of people that know a lot more about this stuff than I do. I mean, we're we're pretty early in the journey, but um, we've we've got a basic idea, and and we you know um, whenever Stixie goes out in the loader, if he sees he'll he'll just he'll just do something little every time, and and we can he's got a pretty good eye for it, and he's a good on on a machine, so. Um, so we can go back in a couple of years and say, well, that works and that doesn't. And we try not to burn too much diesel on investigation, but you know, we, we, um, it's just every time you go somewhere in a loader or something, it's pretty easy just to, to see a little bit of a problem, just throw something up there and it might make a huge difference. It's not like you have to set out and say, right, I'm spending the next six months on this loader around the clock. You can, you can chip away at it. So the, the, the pre-work is being done. Now all we need is some rain to come so there's water for the, the banks to hold. I really look forward to catching up down the track to see how it all, well, I mean, catching up on the other side of a rainfall event is you know, generally happy days anyway, but to be able to see how your interventions, you know, have, mm. have fared, really look forward to hearing from you how that all goes. So from, from having a long history, family history, uh, on this piece of country, Transitioning from sheep to cattle, um, <laughs> being an accountant, uh, and, uh, you know, your interest and your, your, um, being so active in the space of, you know, livestock handling, um, really, I mean, anyone else listening around the country, if you grab the idea of a kid's one and run it in your area, like, mm. hopefully that, that would be at least one thing. I'm hoping a lot of people, an idea they might run with from this episode, but, and then also your involvement in, in the Gascoigne catchments group and the stuff you're doing, you've, I mean, I know any day on a station is two days aren't the same and it's never boring, but man, it's been a, a big change over the, over just your time here or your family's time yeah. here. Yeah. So, uh, my favourite question to finish up is looking back on this story so far, um, what would you say is the major takeaway lesson that you've learned? Um, oh, that's a tricky one. Um, I'd probably fall back on that one that, you know, I, I wish there had been a bit of manual when I was, a bit of a manual when I was, you know, 
when I when we, when we were getting into cattle and I was doing probably a lot of stuff that could have been done better. But but also I think I think it's just I think it's just the love of the land and what you do. It probably drives you towards trying to. You know, you, 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 you know, you're trying to make a, you're trying to make a few bucks and putting your kids through boarding school and, and, you know, getting a bit of a, uh, getting a bit of a buffer and some off farm investments. But I, but I think the most enjoyment out of running a property is from, is, is seeing pr- improvement and, and, uh, and, and just loving the land and looking after it. And that, that's kind of, and I think, you know, most people are in that space a bit, right? You don't, you, you're not out here to make millions of bucks and, and, not many do. I mean, maybe in the last five years, things have been pretty good. But, um, you know, I think, I think there's a lot more to be taken away from just, um, from, from just looking after the country and, and, and loving the country you're in and, and, um, and, and seeing some improvements. I think, I think that's where it's at.